Welcome to the Veteran and Military Affairs channel on Mainly Matters, Maine's most listened to podcast platform. I'm Colonel Retired John R. Mosier. Jack to my friends. Here to discuss matters relating to Maine's vast population of veterans and our military service members across the nation. Today's podcast is one that is tremendously emotional, and in the conscience of our country, it spans the breadth of all sectors of our society. The topic of veteran suicide has been widely publicized by nearly every veteran service organization and nonprofit, not the least of which is the Veterans Health Administration. The statistic of 22 veterans dying by suicide every day in this country is a widely known data point, but there seems to be very little discussion of why, and more importantly, what to do about it. Awareness campaigns and social media and helpline numbers are all a step in the right direction. But I want to talk about some current theories on suicidal suicidal ideation that I think are directly applicable to this phenomenon in our country and hopefully bring some insight into it in in a discussion of prevention around that subject matter. It's a dark subject matter, and it's not always easy to examine. The research has grown prolifically over the last 10 years, I mean, this is not something new that I've been discussing. I've talked about it most of my uh, military career as a veterans advocate. However, really since 2008, 9, and 10, you've seen a lot more discussion of it in full-on campaigns by the active military, the National Guard, and veterans groups to address this. If you hear my voice is a little cracking up here a little bit, I'm just getting over COVID right now, and I've got still a little bit of a sore throat coming out of that, so I'll try to keep it keep it uh, uh, audible for you, so to speak. As I said, I have been um, an advocate for veterans most of my military career and into my retirement on the subjects of resilience, risk reduction, and of course, suicide prevention. I've spoken widely about it um, leading up until my retirement. Uh, and, and it's been quite a saga that our country has gone through on this subject. And uh, of course, it's, it's, a, it's a tragedy uh, that we have any veterans out there uh, dying by suicide, or anybody in general dying by suicide. Uh, many of you know um, that this is a very personal uh, matter for me in that uh, I lost the uh, mother of my two oldest children and former wife to suicide on November 9th, 2013. So, of course, it's a very personal matter for me when it comes to the the vacuous space left behind by those we love when they make the decision to end their own lives. It's a very difficult one for me to talk about, not something that I really like to talk a lot about, but I'm going to share with you some insights and perhaps together we can work through some of this research, some of these theories, and uh, come up with some insight as to how to reduce uh, suicide among our friends, family members, and of course within the veterans community. I had a good friend once uh, in the military who was a chaplain. Uh, we were talking once in my office about suicide, and, and he had a very simple theory on why people die by suicide. And I, I, I understand I'm at a risk right now of oversimplifying uh, sim- this complex phenomenon. But he said, Jack, you know, people die for one reason and one reason alone by suicide. And I was like, well, okay, I'm listening. He said, people die by suicide because they just want the pain to end. They want peace. In short, they don't want to live like that anymore, whatever their that is. Sad, lonely, addicted, depressed, broken, the alternative to living becomes more attractive than living with that pain. You may have seen in the news, tragically, that Miss America 
2019, uh, recently, two days ago, three days ago, made the decision to end her own life. And how is it possible that, that, that these, the thing about suicide that bothers me the most is that unlike accidents, injuries, most diseases, suicide is preventable. You can stop it. It's not this phenomenon where, you know, it's a foregone conclusion that a person is going to make that decision. There are a number of uh, mitigation measures that can be implemented to save those we love. So let's talk about suicide and what it really is to me and how to look at it as a complex phenomenon in our in our society, not just in the military population, by the way, coming out of COVID, I say coming out of COVID, working you know through this long period of COVID, we see that people are uh, are at, are at risk for depression, loneliness, social isolation, and so forth. And we have seen an increase in uh, in the incidence of suicidal ideation and suicide in almost every sector of our society. View suicide really as a loathsome specter that skulks in the periphery of our, the peripheral darkness of our lives, just out of sight, watching and waiting. And during our most broken moments of silent desperation, really preying upon the brokenhearted, the lonely, the addicted, the injured, steps forward and whispers, and a low voice, as smooth as silk. I'll take away your pain. I'll give you peace. I'll take you away. I'll take you away. It's the permanent solution to the temporary problem. And all problems are temporary. All of them, no matter how messed up. We can always transcend the problems in our lives. Suicide, the liar, the coward, the thief. In the past 20 years of of our war in Iraq and Afghanistan, the number one killer of soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, the number one killer that has taken from us, from our nation's best, really, the best young men and women in our society, More than accidents, more than combat action, more than physical illness combined. Can you believe that? It's suicide. Accidents and illness and, you know, those are things that you can kind of in your own mind reconcile. Combat casualties you can reconcile. Suicide, never. It's 100% preventable. And despite the pervasiveness of this phenomenon, only recently have studies been able to separate out some of the fact from the fiction in a slew of false perceptions, narratives, understandings of suicide among our nation's veterans and service members. I began looking at this back in 2008 and 9 and 10 when it became obvious to me at the time I was serving as the uh, on the uh, Plans Operations Readiness Training Advisory Council at the National Guard Bureau in Washington, D.C., and I had access to a lot of these statistics that were coming in, causes of death, you know, safety, uh, risk reduction type studies that were coming up. And I kept seeing suicide coming up over and over and over again. And ironically, it wasn't a matter of, you know, of of, of really the the human aspect, the human toll of suicide that got the military's attention initially. It was the fact that they were paying out so many soldier guaranteed life insurance claims to the point where they actually discussed uh, making it a disqualifying factor for the claiming of those benefits because they, they viewed it as an, there's so little understanding of the phenomenon. They go, oh, we're encouraging people to die by suicide by paying them $200,000, $400,000 in their life insurance claims. So it's an absurd, you know, suggestion. But it really began to, to add up financially for the military, for one thing. 
And it was counter to their narrative of every soldier out there being a hero, being someone stepping forward, especially with so many deploying to those two con- to those two theaters of war. And it was not something that they wanted to discuss. I found out this firsthand as a colonel uh, raising these issues and talking about them. I founded the One Life Warrior campaign. I founded... Uh, the real the resiliency run and began to talk openly um, at a lot of these uh, these gatherings that we had professional development gatherings about some of the aspects of resiliency, which was a countermeasure to suicidal ideation. The idea that if you were healthy and resilient socially, emotionally, spiritually, physically, psychologically you would have the resilience to overcome the adversity, much of which led to ultimately suicidal ideation and death by suicide. It wasn't a complex, you know, anecdote, so to I mean, antidote, so to speak, but it was really important at the time and it got a lot of traction. But the heat I took as an army colonel for raising this issue, particularly during the uh, 2010 resiliency run where uh, a good a good friend and colleague of mine ran the East Coast. We ran a marathon every day for 21 days, the 21-run salute. And the purpose of that was to raise awareness about soldier resiliency and risk reduction and suicide prevention. Got a lot of pushback. Who the hell is this colonel running down the East Coast doing all these uh, news stories and raising all this uh stink about soldier suicide. They didn't want to talk about it. I mean it was a it was a hush hush subject to say the least. So much so that when I got to Washington, I was gonna arrive at Arlington National Cemetery on Memorial Day, they wouldn't let me in the Pentagon. They wouldn't let me at Walter Reed. They wouldn't let me into the readiness center. That no thank you, Colonel Mosier. Uh that's on Memorial Day weekend. We're gonna be on leave we're not going to give you access to soldier, but in particular, Walter Reed. When I arrived there, uh, you know, doing these legs of running uh, every day, I had planned to arrive at Walter Reed and talk to the soldiers while I arrived there. Miraculously, every uh, wounded warrior, every recalibrated warrior uh, that was that was on on the campus, were busy with appointments or busy elsewhere. We had made up T-shirts and uh, hats for them that we wanted to give out to them. Uh, I was not particularly welcome, to say the least. They assigned an E7, uh, Sergeant First Class, to kind of be responsible for me and uh, keep track of me while I was there. And uh, I did our run, and uh, I gave him the boxes of the hats and the uh, T-shirts. But I was not allowed to talk to any soldiers at all. None. I, I was hoping that perhaps some of them would be able to come out and actually watch the run itself. None were able to do that because they were all in appointments, all unavailable. And this was the kind of greeting I received when I re- arrived at both the Pentagon and the Readiness Center. For example, at the Readiness Center, um, I was I was told that yes, if people wanted to join our run into uh, into Arlington. National Cemetery for our final kind of grand finale, uh, they would have to take leave to do that, even though they had all been granted passes for that weekend because it's a Memorial Day weekend. So you could have the day off if you want the day off, but if you want to have the day off and come running with Mosier for the resiliency run, you had to take leave that day. I'm sure there's a a, a core of JAGs lined up to explain why, but the truth of the matter is that the subject of suicide, the subject of resilience, only became a point of, 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 of real concern when the last six marathons we ran, we ran around the Washington, D.C. mall. It just happened to be a perfect uh, six-mile loop that you could run around the, you know, the, the Capitol, down the Lincoln Memorial, back up to the Capitol, down the Lincoln Memorial. And the last day that we were there, the the Army Chief Medical Officer, who at the time was uh, a three-star general, joined me for that last last lap, so to speak, to show his support for what we were trying to do. 
Later that that month, General Chevalier came out on the front page of the Army Army Times and said, "Hey, I have PTSD. I struggle with wellness. I struggle, and I have a counselor." That it suddenly became acceptable, reducing this stigma of help-seeking behavior, to come out and say it's okay to go see a doctor, to go see a psychologist, to go see a counselor if you're struggling with behavioral health issues. This had never been accepted before. The army culture really drove the, you know, suck it up and drive on mentality, which didn't work. It didn't work for deployed soldiers, and it didn't work for those who remained uh, tending the home fires, so to speak, either. And only then, after this phenomenon began to emerge, did they start doing real research and real data management around suicides and suicidal ideation. For example, uh, there was a lot of, every time a soldier dies in service, of course, is a 15-6 investigation or an investigation to determine the cause of death and all, you know, from a safety perspective and prevention perspective, doesn't matter what the cause of death is. But what you couldn't find in any of these investigations is any reference to suicide. You saw a lot of asphyxiations. You saw a lot of gunshot wounds. You saw a lot of lacerations. I mean, again, a pretty dark subject here. What we were discovering is that there was a lot of, quote, accidental deaths occurring that were not attributed to suicide because they did not want to talk about suicide in the United States military. So that culture, thankfully, over the last 10 years, really from 2010, to and you saw a lot of front page stories coming out on this, even within military publications. Uh, you, can, you can Google them. They're out there. And uh, you will see uh, a lot of this purporting uh, in, in, in advocating help-seeking behavior. The initial pendulum swing for military programming against uh, behavioral health problems and suicidal ideation was, you know, your typical PowerPoint presentation. Everybody was forced to go. In fact, it's not funny, but the joke at the time was the training was so bad that it was going to increase the risk of suicide among among our veterans and our service members at the time, because it was it was terrible to be honest. But at least it was something moving forward and opening the conversation and discussions around behavioral health management in our service members and therefore in our veterans. Twenty two a day. I mean, it's a bit of an arbitrary number. I mean, I think it's it's hard to say. Okay. 22 veterans die a day from suicide. How do they even calculate that exactly? I mean, where is the, re- the repository of this information, you know, to, to keep track of this? And, and the point is, it doesn't matter if it's 22 or two, it's too many. And let's talk about a theory that I, I was made very much aware of um, at, a, at one of these speeches that I was doing where I was able to meet this amazing doctor, uh, a psychologist, uh, Dr. Thomas Joyner, PhD. He's from uh, not the University of Florida, but Florida State University, I think, where he wrote an amazing book um, called Why People Die by Suicide. And it's based on a, a, a kind of a combination of theories that he put together and some really great research and uh, came up with this theory, which I thought was not only an incredible kind of breakthrough, and it's become, in my opinion, the leading most sort of theory on suicidal ideation, because it has a preventive model that goes along with it, versus this, you know, kind of blind acceptance that suicide is going to happen no matter what, there's nothing you can do about it, it's too bad. Well, I don't, I, don't, I don't agree with that, of course. But I want to talk to you about this theory, which is called the interpersonal theory of suicidal ideation. You can read about it anywhere. And it's, it's, it's got three basic components that really kind of, 
highlight a veteran's, I don't want to call it a predisposition, veterans or first responders, but you can see how these three components would be specifically applicable to veterans and service members and first responders. It's an incredibly enlightening theory. I'm going to go through it with you in just a moment here. Some of this new research has come out, uh, has definitively uh, made the assertions that our veterans, and you think about the millions and millions and millions of veterans that are out there in our country, 22 die by, every day by suicide. I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot in such a huge population, but it's twice as many at twice the rate of non-veterans. So, you know, what is it about veterans necessarily that that has such an elevated level of suicidal ideation and death by suicide? I mean, we all think of the kind of this, the the model or the the model, the narrative of soldier gets deployed, goes to combat multiple times, comes home, can't adjust to society, becomes socially isolated, gets divorced, gets depressed drinks too much, and ultimately dies by suicide. I'm not diminishing or marginalizing that narrative because it's true. However, more research dictates that veterans who are not deployed, not deployed, never went to war, die at a much higher rate than those that did. So I'm not you know, backing away from or unraveling the, the 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 theory that combat deployments increase stress, social isolation, addiction, other contributing factors to suicide, suicidal behavior, because that is true. But it goes to show you that just because people weren't mobilized or didn't go to combat means they're not out of the woods. And there's, there's a bunch of theories as to why, why that's so. We have a lot of resources in place for our veterans who mobilized. They have the VA, they have support units within their, within their, uh, within their, their uh, formations, those who are still serving an active duty. I mean, there's, I, I hate this term. I have a friend who's a former general who, who used the, the term embarrassment of riches in terms of resources that are available to our veterans. Because it's, to me, it's never enough, of course. But there's a lot out there available to veterans to f- who, who demonstrate help-seeking behavior. The reduction of stigma around help-seeking behavior uh, you know, it's, it's the same old thing. If you if you fall and break your leg, you go to the emergency room. They set it, they put a cast on it, they fix you. If you have a really bad cold or COVID, you go and you get fixed. You know, you, you get over it. We would do the same thing with behavioral health problems. Because in 2012, people reported to emergency rooms and to their doctors for behavioral health problems in the military more than they did quote, physical injuries or illnesses. So it's real. And it needs to be treated as though it was real. So these are things that we're learning now. I mean, the National Guard last year reported a 37% increase in suicidal behavior among its among its soldiers. And as I said, we know that non-deployed soldiers are a higher risk, 20% higher, not just a little bit, a lot higher risk than those who are deployed. The greatest risk for veterans are those who are three years from separation from service. You know, I do uh, the Colonel Journal. I'm going to talk more about this. Um, those soldiers, three years from since separation, they get out of the military. That three-year window is an incredibly dangerous time frame for our soldiers. Young and old, the idea that these are young guys who can't handle, uh, young guys and girls who can't handle the stress of combat, and all that, that, that's a false narrative because we see uh, suicidal behavior in all age categories of our veterans' populations, not just the, the young people who are getting out and having a tough time adapting to civilian life, according to that narrative. 
you know, it's, 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 you see a lot of the financial problems, divorces, things like that, and our middle to older veterans, or even those who are facing the loneliness and socialization, so, uh, social isolation of being older um, as, as they retire. So, so there's plenty to go around is what I'm saying when it comes to this type of uh, phenomenon. And the research is still a little bit spotty out there in terms of contradicting itself and so forth. But, but let me just say that a lot of the, the, the myths around soldiers coming home from war, becoming, you know, can't adjust, end up living under a bridge is not necessarily accurate in all aspects of this phenomenon. We don't want to isolate our thinking to that one sort of narrative because there's a lot out there that's in direct contrary to that. The interpersonal theory of suicide, Dr. Thomas Joyner, PhD. It has really three important components that we want to look at. And as I describe them to you, think of soldiers, veterans, your loved ones who maybe didn't even serve, but this is this is a really important part of of understanding suicidal behavior in general. And understand that Dr. Thomas Joyner, who I heard speak, is an amazing speaker, just completely and totally engaging person. I mean, I was riveted throughout his entire hour-long presentation and talked to him after about how important it was to me. He also is a survivor of suicide and that his father died by suicide. And it's kind of, I think, one of his, maybe one of his motivations in really, really looking at this in a more scientific and, uh, and, and more methodo- meth- meth- <laughs> methodical way. Okay, I'm going to take a sip of coffee here. Okay, the interpersonal theory of suicide. Dr. Joyner is a professor of psychology and the director of the Laboratory for Study and Prevention of Suicide-Related Conditions and Behaviors. He's from the Florida State University faculty. And there's some really great articles in a a publication I found called Profile, Profile Magazine, Psychology Today, and in other types of uh, publications on psychological behaviors and studies pretty much have him well-published in this regard. Let's talk about the three components of this interpersonal theory of suicide and how they relate to soldiers and therefore how to prevent suicidal ideation in our loved ones and in ourselves. The first is a feeling of isolation we're talking about social isolation here. I am alone. That's 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 the first important uh, per, important condition we'll call it, uh, which can, is one of three different components: feelings of isolation, social isolation. It may not even be particularly true. It's just a feeling of social isolation and being alone. You know, look look how COVID has contributed to this feeling in all of us when we are essentially uh, masked, quarantined at home, not allowed to con- conduct, this is not a political statement, don't get me wrong, it's just under the protocol of COVID, we've all been subjected to home quarantines, lack of normal behaviors, and not being able to see loved ones, not being able to carry on with our normal behaviors. This is This is a compounding factor of many soldiers who within that three-year window of leaving service, or even while they're still serving, find themselves socially isolated. And parts of these studies that I read, and there are many of them, talks about this um, um, in terms of uh, how uh, galvanizing events, 9-11, when the countries came together, JFK's assassination, believe it or not, I mean, students on spring break that are away from their college or or kids that are out of school, ding, ding, on COVID again, have increased senses of isolation where galvanizing events that bring us together uh, reduce feelings of isolation and feeling alone. 
when we can't have normal holiday gatherings because of COVID over Christmas or uh, things like that. Um, when we have you know, just basic visiting, you know, I love to go and visit my parents two or three times a week. And having had COVID now for about three weeks, <laughs> um, I have not been able to go in my normal behaviors of going and visiting them. You know, it's not, it's not good. So yes, feeling of isolation, feeling of being alone. That's the first important consideration. Here's the second part of it. Feelings of burdensomeness, burden. I'm a burden. I am, there's no value in me being a part of this equation called life. This is a false perception all the time. The idea that we don't provide value, that the light of our life shining in this world is insignificant and doesn't matter is a false perception. Everybody has value. Everybody's light is important. But these feelings of burdensomeness are particularly real when we look at some of the baggage that veterans have, Vater veterans who suffer from PTSD, TBI, other types of injuries, poor health, where they, where they require assistance, help-seeking behavior, can, can add to that feeling, I am a burden. I'm better off not here for my family. We see this in many soldiers who do redeploy and come home with problems or retire from the military with problems, deployed or not, where they have adding to the burden of their family's dynamic because of poor health, because of behavioral health issues, or other types of problems, addiction, where they're not feeling like they're contributing to the positive, uplifting, uh, you know, success of, of a family unit, or within society in general. That feeling of burdensomeness you see in, in Dr. Joyner's research uh, suicide notes of people who died by suicide or attempted serious attempts on their own lives, a very common strain in those notes is that idea of burdensomeness. It's better that I do this now for my family. As, as, as messed up as that is, as backwards as that is. That's so why I say it's always an incorrect perception. I had a counselor once, great lady by the name of, name of, I'll give her a name just for privacy's sake, but she was a great counselor. She had carved in a wooden sign above her office door. It was this important and this, you know, much of an epiphany for me. Don't believe everything you think. Don't believe everything you think. Because, you know, God forbid, we incorrectly perceive the world around us, especially when we're, we're suffering. So the idea of feeling burdensomeness and that you're a burden for others or that our veterans feel that way, we know it's not true, but they believe it's true. And because of that, coupled with feelings of isolation, it becomes a very dangerous dynamic because the two together create what is called the desire for suicide. The ending of that pain we discussed earlier the desire for peace, the ending of that, whatever that is for them. Feeling of isolation, I am alone. Feeling of burdensomeness, I am a burden. Together create the necessary condition of the desire for suicide. That's Together, that's one of the critical components. The, the third critical component one, two, and three, is the capability for suicide, the acquired capability for suicide. We're all born with a natural instinct for survival. This is why we're afraid of heights. This is why we're <laughs> afraid of pain. Certain, you know, there's, there's a certain survivor instinct that we all have that keeps us safe and alive. The acquired capacity for suicide becomes... I am not afraid to die. So you can see how this dynamic grows from I am alone to I am a burden as the desire to end that pain, 
the desire for peace, the lie of suicide, coupled with the capacity to do so, which has to be overcome. You have to overcome that desire for survival. This is an acquired aspect of the model because nobody, like I said, is born necessarily with that capacity. And what happens if you get right deep into the research um, beyond low belonging, social isolation, belong perceived burden, beyond that, is the acquired ability to enact self-injury. And there's a lot written on this. And what we've discovered in the in these notes that I have here in front of me, is like, how do you learn how how to do that? Well, self-injury comes in a lot of different forms. Not only the physical act of deprivation and self-injury through harming, but exposure to harming, injury, death. People who have suffered an illness, people who have suffered an injury, people who have uh, been exposed to death, destruction, veterans, uh, in the presence of death and danger, have a reduced level of self-preservation because they've seen it. We also see these 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 characteristics in doctors because they are, particularly emergency room doctors, because they are constantly exposed to death, injury. It desensitizes that natural instinct for self-preservation. It's a kind of a complex psychological phenomenon, and, and, and Dr. Jordan writes about it at length, and I, I could read you the whole thing, uh, but, it, but it's quite long. I, I don't like to necessarily read on this podcast, but I did underline a few pieces of it here. It says, you know, um, just, just reading quickly through it. Yeah, okay. Okay, yeah. Okay, so what, 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 what we're really talking about is that people, as they're exposed to these uh, incidents of death, destruction, illness, injury, and their sense of self-preservation is reduced over time, then they acquire the capability to harm themselves and enact upon those impulses of suicide that are satisfied by the conditions of being alone and being a burden. So the three of them together, Picture three concentric circles where uh, we're talking about feelings of isolation, feelings of burdensomeness, and then the third circle, all all interlocked, capability for suicide. The intersection of those circles where we talk about desire for suicide and capability for suicide being suicide or near-lethal suicide attempt. 94% of people who have a successful suicide, it's a terrible term, forgive me for that, who, who make the decision to end their lives with a serious attempt or a completion of this suicide, 94% of them have satisfied these three conditions. It doesn't mean that if you satisfy them, you will die by suicide understand the difference, it means that 94% of those serious attempts or completed suicides had satisfied feeling alone, being bur- feeling that they're burdens, and having reduced instincts for self-preservation, i.e. the capability. Therefore, the will to die and the capability to die in these cases were satisfied and resulted in a completed suicide. So now that we understand the interpersonal theory of suicide and how they relate to soldiers or other people, you know, who who maybe have those those same conditions satisfied, how do we diffuse, de-escalate and back away from the, the this this uh, uh lethal dynamic? First of all, feelings of isolation. I talk about this a lot in the Colonel Journal, but when you leave something that you love so greatly, the military, 
or that you have such a sense of belonging, such a sense of team, such an elevated purpose, a concentration of effort. I mean, at the risk of sounding shallow, it's hard to replace that in your life. I was very fortunate that I became a main guide in accordance with the legacy of my family. And I'm still surrounded by veterans every day. I'm going to be going out to the Travis Mills Foundation to ice fish on, on Wednesday. And I'll be surrounded by great former soldiers, recalibrated warriors. It's the most uplifting, positive thing that I can do is go to the middle of a frozen lake to go ice fishing and to still be around these wonderful people. That's just one example of how I've overcome my post-retirement drudgery of missing the people. Yeah, the military was always important to me, and I loved it. But the people, I mean, I hope I kept a pretty balanced life while I was serving. But boy, having those great people out of your life that you're used to seeing every day for decades of my adult life was not easy. And I don't have, and, and many people don't have, I should say, many people don't have the incredible family that I have, the incredible friends that I happen to have, that I'm blessed to have, or the elevated purpose of bringing our nation's most wounded, most injured veterans out into the healing sanctuary of, of Maine's woods and waters. You have to find your purpose beyond the military, where you're socially engaged with others, local clubs, churches, volunteering. You can volunteer in a lot of these organizations and have that, 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 social, that social isolation overcome by being around other people, reaching out. It, it's, it's not easy for many people. I understand that. Uh, but that is a very important aspect of breaking that cycle of isolation and socially being alone or feeling alone. In addition, burdensomeness. When nothing's going right, keep doing right, and the universe will turn for you. I've said that for years. I mean, when nothing is going right, and boy, sometimes it really, really adds up burdensomeness and feeling like, oh, why am I even here? Why am I dealing with this? When you just keep getting smacked on your in, in the face over and over and over again, pick yourself up and keep doing right when nothing's going right and that energy in your life will change. And you're getting victories. Volunteering is so important. You can volunteer at the VA. They always need volunteers there. It's a great program. You can volunteer at some of the local veterans groups. I volunteer for Project Healing Waters Fly Fishing as a program leader. I volunteer at the Travis Mills Foundation. I volunteer at the VA. Anywhere that'll take, take Mosier in the door, that'll let me do whatever I can do to help, I'm going to do that. And it reduces a person's, you know, because you're contributing. You're, you're giving back. And, and, you know, it's important to do that. It's important to give to others. You always, I mean, a good deed is its own reward, and that's true. So reducing burdensomeness by starting at home and contributing not only in your own family, but your neighbors, uh, service organizations, local organizations will reduce that feeling of burdensomeness by giving sense of purpose and a fulfillment while, of course, engaging you socially in other groups. And that means that we see people that are struggling, we invite them. You see a veteran who's kind of alone and by himself or herself, invite them to come over, invite them to go fishing, invite them to go for a walk, invite them to talk. How you doing today? What's going on? This is what we should be doing is good people anyway. That's the golden rule. Now, the capacity for suicide. Many of us are exposed to traumatic events in our deployments or in our service or in our daily lives. Overcoming illness puts us at risk. Overcoming injuries puts us at risk. That's when demonstrating help-seeking behavior and talking to a licensed therapist matters. 
And I emphasize licensed therapist because I have a great relationship with my mom. I have a great relationship with my wife, a great relationship with my kids, but they're not trained in some of the issues that I have. (laughs) I do have issues, trust me. (laughs) I mean, a clinical evaluation approach matters because there are strategies directly related to some of the phenomenons that I struggle with. Our our loved ones, they love us no matter what, but they're not going to give us those strategies and the insight into why we feel the way we do and why that is such a drag and how to how to combat some of those those stigma and you know triggers that helps me to understanding what's happening neurologically with me sometimes is the greatest comfort i have because it makes me feel like i'm not crazy <laughs> it makes me feel like i'm not crazy there's a reason why i feel the way i do and other people do too if other people had been through what you went through, they would feel the same way. Here's why. And you learn about, you know, neurosympathetic responses and involuntary responses to certain stimuli, and you understand what's happening. I mean, I could give you lots of examples of these. I have friends who won't stop at red lights because they don't like to stop in traffic. They ran convoy after convoy after convoy in Iraq and Afghanistan, and you just don't stop. Yeah. So now they're driving through Waterville, Maine, where there's a hundred lights out there. It's like downtown Manhattan driving down Kennedy Memorial Drive there. And they just don't stop. I'm like, hey, buddy, you know that's a red light. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, I don't like to stop. It really bugs it. Really, oh, they'll have to exit the vehicle when they stop at like a construction site. Like you maybe you ought to talk to somebody about that because it's incredibly demoralizing for a person to have to have those behaviors, not understand where they're coming from, and it's embarrassing when they're with somebody they love and they have to explain why they're getting out to check the tires for the fifth time every time there's a stop sign or every time they come to a construction sign. As I said, those types of things require a clinical approach. And there's some great counselors out there. If you don't get a good counselor that you don't click with right off, go to another one. Go to another one and until you get that kind of counseling relationship going with it with a person that you enjoy going to see, you enjoy the you, the, the conversations and, and gives you insight as as my my counselor did with me. She would whip out a whiteboard because, you know, as an operations officer, and she would write this out. She would say, okay, Jack, this is what's happening here in your brain. Here's the stimuli. Here's the response. This is why you feel the way you do. Now, here's what to do about it. And that's what was so valuable to me in going to a clinical approach to behavioral health management. I mentioned these specifically around the capability for suicide because a lot of these not being afraid to die stimuli are deep-seated within our own conscience, our own psychology, our own neurological makeup, and do require a professional approach to really understand what happened when you happened upon that accident scene or when you were injured at work or when you overcame that that cancer scare. Those types of things, clinically speaking, from Dr. Joyner's work, tell us that they reduce our natural ability to survive, our, our natural instinct to survive. I see us coming up on 50 minutes right now. I'm really thank, thanking you for this somewhat wordy podcast. But really, when it comes to prevention around this theory, interpersonal theory of suicide as it relates to veterans. You can see that first responders, particularly police officers, are in the same boat as our veterans right now. They have a war going on at home. Again, not to get political, war going at home. We see police officers, not unlike our Vietnam era veterans, not particularly celebrated over the last several years, vilified in many cases. Uh, is it, they've taken some hard hits, and we're seeing an elevation in suicidal ideation among our, uh, our, our peace officers out there as well. 
So they too are at risk, as are other members of our society. You can, you can Google very easily professions most likely, not most likely, but at highest risk for suicidal ideation. And they are all those that do really fixate on these three aspects of this theory. I wish it got more attention and more airplay. So I wanted to include it today in my podcast. I'm very thankful for your time uh, in listening to this uh, posit by me and talking about our veterans, why they are not predisposed for higher levels of suicidal ideation, because it's not a predisposition. However, looking at it from this perspective, those three critical components of being, feeling that I am alone, feeling that I am a burden, and that I am not afraid to die, creating a dynamic of the desire for suicide and the uh, capability to complete that suicide. I mean, I will close with the simple affirmation that all veterans are greatly loved, greatly appreciated. Our first responders, likewise, our members of our society, you are important to this world. You are loved. Your light in this world is a critical aspect of our stratospheric network of life on this planet. And it's important that your light shines under a high level of fulfillment and being the best person that you can be in living a life of joy that you so richly deserve and a part of a community that that is, is critical to our nation's very fabric. So I hope that you enjoy this podcast. My name is Colonel Retired Jack Mosier for Mainly Matters. This has been the Veterans and Military Affairs Channel. Have a great day and uh, love you very much. We'll talk to you soon out here.